Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Show today, two former vice chairs of the Federal Reserve, Alice Rivlin and Alan Blinder, will join us. We'll get market insight from Brian Jacobson of Wells Fargo. But first, we welcome James Sweeney, chief economist and co-head of global economics at Credit Suisse, uh, here in the studio with us uh, in New York. Great to see you. Thank you. Happy Let's start with your your outlook uh, and a phrase that stood out to me. That is, uh, we're looking at a new narrative here, not uh, a new normal. Give us a sense of, of what you're looking forward to here in the new year. Well, it, it was uh, really trying to think through what will the market be focusing on. And I, I think this era of, of low interest rates, deflation fears, central bank obsession, that's giving way to talk of protectionism, higher inflation, full employment, fiscal policy, tax reform. It's a long list of, of new things. So the, the, the narratives are in there. The specifics are not exactly filled in for the moment. But, um, but in our view, you know, growth is okay. For the for the moment, um, we are monitoring the uh, the political situation for for what comes next. We're not fearing high inflation, um, but I I think the market will have an inflation scare this year. I think it'll have a growth scare this year. I think it'll have a protection scare this year. Might have a geopolitical scare. You know, there, there's a there's a, a decent, haunted house. There's a shit. decent <laughs> list. So uh, our our outlook this year was a was a series of essays rather than the usual kind of data focused. Here, here's what's happening in the world. And I, I think that's by necessity. You mentioned protectionism, and, and there was so much conversation during the campaign, during the transition, about the prospect for tariffs. Uh, now it seems the conversation has shifted to this border adjustment tax. Are they one and the same? Does one provoke more uh, nervousness or apprehension than the other? Well, I think the border adjustment tax in the in the context of this destination-based cash flow tax with border adjustment is really a totally different thing from from a, a tariff mm. or or just a, a a border tariff a punitive border tariff on on firms or or on uh, companies so it would be helpful if if people just started separating them all altogether um the um i i think the border adjusted tax in that corporate tax reform context is actually fake protectionism it's not real protectionism um i think if if you had that kind of policy you know, it's going to give you a big move in the dollar. It's going to give you a lot of chaos in the market. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's not necessarily protectionist. Yeah. It may even give cover to not do some of the other things because it, right. a more idiosyncratic protectionism through actual tariffs, I think, is, is a much, much bigger problem and more likely to lead to tit-for-tat mm-hmm. uh, type, you know, conflicts. You write an optimistic sheet. What is GDP for the United States? What what is What are you framing, if you will, for Mr. Trump as we move forward? Yeah, we, we see GDP running in the sort of two and a quarter to two and a half range right now. That's um, not three percent. How does he get it to three percent? I mean, I think you could get it to three percent for a minute with uh, with with a with a surge in investment at some point. Um, a pent up surge in investment appears to be due, but dollar strength at the moment is getting in the way. Um, you know, some of the energy bust for a few years ago could could reverse. 
Um, getting persistent real GDP of 3% would be really difficult with the, with the demographics of, of the U.S. And that, David, is what is missing in a lot of the media frenzy is the time function of growth. Mm -hmm. Popping it for, what, a quarter, James? Yeah. But not for a year or two years to get to the midterm elections. Is the conversation over about whether or not we're going to get an infrastructure package or fiscal stimulus? Or are we going to have a conversation about the economic grounding for, for a plan like that? Well, um, <laughs> so much as there is economic grounding, I suppose. But I mean, I, I, I think there is some economic grounding yeah. for, for both ideas. Um, you, well, really, all three ideas, if you separate personal income and, and corporate income tax, because they're really very different things, but probably need to be done together. Um, I, I think really now it's just the politics. It's just the horse trading in, in Washington. Can you get to these um, reforms? I mean, we know there's a fair amount of Democratic support uh, for infrastructure. There, there's some Democrat support for uh, corporate tax reform. Um, corporate tax reform might not even be stimulative. It might not even reduce revenues, tax revenues from the corporate sector. Personal income tax reform, I think, is a little more of a partisan issue. Um, with less Democrat support. And I, I think the economics of stimulus from that are, are a little more of an open, they're a different question. But basically, you know, I, I think take all, all three of these things separately and have the long discussion. I'm happy to have it, but I, <laughs> but I think it's, it's difficult to encapsulate uh, the three together into, into a short summary, really, each of them is, is, is complicated. Well, if you'll indulge me, I'll quote once more from your, your outlook, another great line here. Markets overreact to political rumors and underreact to political facts, which seems you know, a bit of enthusiasm here during, during earnings season. But do you think that the market is now beginning to reckon with some of the, the facts, the political facts? Well, I mean, what I meant by that is, is um, you know, forget Donald Trump himself and exactly who's running the administration and, and all that. If you just told someone a few years ago, that in late January 2017, the focus would be on U.S. disengagement from the world and a significant increase in protectionism pushed by the U.S., mm -hmm. um, I think people would say, wow, markets, you know, equity markets will be much lower. Um, you know, they, they, they would think this would be a time of great risk aversion. And, and you look at the markets and it's, it's not. The, um, I think the fact of, of U.S. policy intentions has changed. Um, the markets haven't really reacted to it um, in the expected way, or at least maybe the market is reacting to the expectations of, of lower regulations and, and stimulus. And, and so, you know, we've had, we've had that short-term rush of, uh, of, of positive, and, and, and we're sort of waiting to see. Maybe there's, people are not really believing that genuine toothy protectionism is, is, is coming. When you look at, at intersections of politics, economics, and the markets, are, are there historical uh, analogs that jump out at you? Or are we at an unprecedented time here, or have we seen things like this before? I mean, I think there are periods in history that offer interesting um, parallels. Mm -hmm. I, I don't see anything that's perfect. I think the mid-'80s, the time of, um, of, of, of rising interest rates, of a strong dollar, of real angst in the U.S. manufacturing sector is, is interesting. You know, there was a point in the Reagan administration where basically the Treasury Secretary and the Chief of Staff switched jobs and you you ended up with um, you ended up with a concerted effort to weaken the dollar and to uh, and, and to really go after uh, some Japanese um, protectionism um, through some some tariffs of of our own. That was a big shift. 
And the last time the U.S. had kind of broad tariffs is actually in the early 70s when, when we left the, uh, the, the gold standard. Um, I, I read that the, the equity market actually rallied mm-hmm. uh, onshore um, on, on that initial policy change and, and foreign stocks sold off. So sometimes protectionism could be good for the local companies mm-hmm. who are being protected. Um, and then others are, are going all the way back mm-hmm. to Smoot-Hawley and, yeah. and talking about, you know, is this going to cause the Great Depression Part Two, and which gets a little over the right. top. I mean, the the evidence is not that clear that Smoot-Hawley was a major driver of the sure. Great Depression sure. in the first place. But um, but history helps, but history doesn't offer a, a clear a clear precedent. Let's continue with James Sweeney. Lots to talk about. Maybe we can look at uh, his uh, arch theme of, uh, well, there's a deflation scare, and now it's going to be a inflation scare. Would you help us, James Sweeney? with trade between the United Kingdom and the United States. Prime Minister May gave a speech in Davos, polar opposite of what I'm hearing from President Trump. So they meet on Friday. What will you listen for? Well, I, I think, I mean, I think in, from a geopolitical perspective, the tone, remember the shoulder-to-shoulder comment by Tony Blair uh, year, years ago, um, can you maintain that that tone of, of of a special relationship in the first place under the current conditions? That's, I think, interesting. But I, I think in terms of economics, um, you know, if if Brexit, if if this is a hard Brexit, um, does the does the UK want a special bilateral trade deal with the US? And then if the US is is willing to to expedite a process leading to such a trade deal. Um, is that you know is that going to be done on generous terms or is is that going to be done in a uh, in a kind of confrontation? And, and to be way? clear, it can't be done until she straightens out all her EU activities. I mean, I mean, Mr. Trump can't say let's wrap up a trade deal by Christmas. Well, right? with so many of these things, when we say it can't be done, what is the it? Mm. You know, what is the protectionism? What is the deal? A deal and investigation. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of this stuff is, is very fuzzy. It seems to live in a publicity space rather than on a, on a, on kind of a, a page with, with, with details. Oh. And, and this, is not, this is not especially clear what, what yeah. kind of document will right. emerge from this. David, ask something. Yeah, let me, let me pick up off of that. Um, your forecast and the, and the outlook is for the dollars to continue to be strong in 2017. The outlook written before Donald Trump tweeted about the strength of the dollar, his, his, his <laughs> wish or his concern here that it's, it's not weak uh, enough. That's kind of unprecedented in and of itself. Um, does that change your, your sense of where the dollar will go? Uh, are we seeing the end of the strong dollar policy? Do we have a better well, sense of what the dollar policy is going to be here well, under I this could, president? I could tell you somewhere in our lengthy outlook was a was a comment about dollar Twitter policy. Uh-huh. Um, so <laughs> that was actually part of our expectation was that we, we would get some comments. Um, you know, I... I uh, as I said earlier, I, I think the dollar, I think the level of the dollar and its move over the last couple of years is an issue. Um, it is an issue for manufacturing investment. Uh, we, we have sluggish exports and we have sluggish investment uh, in manufacturing. And even, I'm, I'm talking about the last two years, I'm not talking about the longer term trends, right. even compared to the last 15, you can see that the dollar is having a little bit of an, an effect. Um, you know, there's a lot of narratives looking back, favoring the dollar, growth differentials, interest rate differentials, stimulus from the U.S., maybe there's a shortage of dollars overseas, there's a great demand for dollars rather than RMB in, in Asia. 
Um, all these stories have, have helped the dollar yeah. to rally. But now when you're talking protectionism, when you're talking change in the U.S. role in the world, some people are talking about, you know, could you see reserve managers, you know, consider lowering um, their their dollar holdings older, over time mm. in response to some of this. You know, there's there's a lot of two-way risk on, well, on the dollar. But to me, the, the, the bringing it home to kind of markets and, and really relevant fact-based stuff – um, the the issue is basically if the dollar continues to strengthen this year, um, it's going to get in the way of President Trump's objectives in, uh, right. in, in in improving the short term outlook for manufacturing. And I wonder, could that be part of the the the, the calculus in choosing the next okay. Fed chair? Okay, James Sweeney, got to leave it there. Thank you so much. With credit, Suisse, David Gurren, Tom Keen, worldwide, coast to coast. This is Bloomberg. Brian Jacobson with us right now from uh, Wells Fargo. It's almost a relief to talk to Brian Jacobson because I'm not going to ask you any politics other than to say, Brian, do I change what I'm doing with the little bit of wealth I have because of all of this noise going on around us? Well, that's a good question. I appreciate not having to talk too much about politics. I think we've gotten a little weary about that. I did a, a two-hour client event yesterday, which was a lot of fun. But as you can probably imagine, 75% of it was discussing the political yeah. environment. And I think it is on the tops of a lot of people's minds. Uh, my encouragement to everybody is to just not let politics affect your portfolio. Try to focus on your goals and make sure that your allocations are in line with those goals. It's too easy to get caught up in the latest tweets or the latest report and uh, panic. Uh, and uh, as many people have oftentimes said, many people smarter than I am, is that uh, we are oftentimes our own worst enemies when it comes to investing. And that overreaction can be very detrimental when it comes to trying to achieve those goals. Bearing that in mind, there, there are the tweets, there is the short-termism. I wonder, though, uh, here, I, here I tread into politics a little bit. If, oh, if, if, you, <laughs> if, if you are able to extrapolate, you know, I, I recall after the election, people were getting into utilities. They thought that there was going to be big infrastructure spending. for this. There are macro themes here. Ignore those as well as you ignore the tweets? You know, I look at the macro themes, and it's always it's difficult to sort of uh, suss out the difference between what's an economic trend and what's uh, sort of a political right. development that you should react to, because politics clearly do affect the economy. But the economy itself, even though it's not a machine, and I really hate using like physics analogies, but uh, the, the economy develops its own type of momentum. And right now, I think that really what you saw back in July was the economic momentum beginning to shift a little bit towards a slightly higher pace of economic activity. You know. The the labor market is continuing to improve. Wages are picking up. Purchasing manager indices are looking pretty healthy, and not just in the United States, but even globally. Now, policy can affect that, uh, but oftentimes policy has very long and variable legs. So if they do some sort of, like, let's say, infrastructure plan. Yesterday it was uh, floated <laughs> that there might be a $1 trillion infrastructure yeah. program uh, by the Democrats. Well, that works out. That's $100 billion per year, right? So you have to take that and divide it by 10 because of the way that they do their math, and they don't believe in the time value of money. So they think that $100 billion right. spent 10 years from now is the same right. as $100 billion today. So, you know, this stuff takes time to build. David, could you explain to Brian that we adore physics references? <laughs> Just, you know, in case, you know, I'm sorry. We're all Newtonian. There you go. We're all Newtonian. Make that the uh, the surveillance bumper sticker. You know, if, if you are weary of politics, as many are, Brian, and you want to look overseas, are there 
markets right now where it is less of a player, less casting less of a shadow uh, for, for those who, who don't want to have to weigh or, or, or think about or try to figure out the latest political machinations? Well, one of my favorite areas to look right now are some of those where I think from a, a longer-term value perspective, there's some decent opportunity. And I see that in a lot of emerging markets. But the problem is, is you know, politics is casting quite a, a dark shadow across a lot of the emerging markets, the uncertainty about what's going to happen as far as on the trade front, what's going to happen with commodity prices, what's going to happen with, you know, China's uh, growth slowdown. So there are a lot of dark clouds, but that is actually where I think there's some good opportunities, because because, uh, you know, valuations, when I look back at some charts, you know, based on price to expected cash flows, uh, emerging markets are trading at a rather significant discount relative to their developed market peers. So, you know, I think you can look at emerging markets for longer-term value opportunities. Keeping in mind that the emerging markets, it's a plural, not a singular noun, uh, that there are you know, all sorts of differences between, say, what's going on in Turkey versus what's going on in India, both of which are emerging markets. Brian, you know, we love to have you on because you are truly in the trenches of standing in a room with 10 or 100 people or more, frankly, with their hands up in the air saying, excuse me, sir. I mean, you know, some of the real concerns that are out there. If we make the statement this is the most unloved bull market ever, how does this moment of January 2017 change that idea? Do we go to effervescence or are we even less loved than we've been since early 2009? I think some people are loving the wrong parts, uh, you know, as, as far as uh, looking at expecting that we're going to see continually rising interest rates. I anticipate that we'll probably see, you know, the 10-year Treasury end the year at around, you know, 2.9 to 3 percent, something like that. But then how much higher are we going to go? Maybe 3.5 percent. So a lot of people are hating on uh, fixed income. A lot of people are hating on the emerging markets. And I think that's where it represents the best opportunity. So there are pockets where people love it. Look, coming out of the election, you know, small cap stocks did well, I think justifiably so. They tend to be uh, more, it can't deal with the regulations quite as well. Uh, they also tend to be higher taxed than what the large cap stocks are. So and some of that uh, increase in price, I think, was justified. But is some of the sector uh, that people were p focusing on as far as what, say, the infrastructure build-out, I think that any infrastructure plan that we get is going to have to be paid for. To get it through a Republican-controlled House and Senate, they don't want to blow up the deficit. So, um, you know, maybe some of the run-up that we saw in some parts of the industrial material space uh, was a little bit overdone. So, you know, people, I think, were kind of, uh, you've, you've got this mix of euphoria and a mix of pessimism. And it makes for a very interesting market. It causes all sorts of sector rotation. And that's, I think, going to be one of the big themes for 2017 is you'll see periods of time where one sector is sort of, you know, charging ahead for, uh, you know, a month at a time, but then suddenly it stumbles. And that's why it's so important to just keep it diversified. Don't try to get over your skis with any particular one sector bet. Brian Jacobson, take us into that small cap world. Uh, what, what's attractive in it to you right now? Well, I think that in the small cap stocks, uh, you know, it's uh, it's just like the emerging markets. It's a, it's a, it's a very diverse set of uh, entities that exist in there. And one of the areas that I think people really honed in on after President uh, Trump, or at that point it was uh, uh, you know candidate Trump became President elect Trump, and now he's President Trump, was that a lot of the small cap stocks they tend to be more domestically focused as far as with their revenues. They also tend to have a higher median effective tax rate. 
But one of the problems with uh, just looking at, okay, well, they're more heavily taxed and therefore they'll benefit more from corporate tax cuts is not all of those small cap stocks are profitable. As of the third quarter 2016, for the smallest 2,000 stocks, only about uh, 63% of them were actually had taxable profits. So I actually kind of like more mid-cap stocks in this environment as far as who might benefit from uh, corporate tax reform. 78% of mid-cap stocks were profitable in the third quarter 2016, effective tax rate of around 29.74%. Uh, so they, they could be decent beneficiaries. So I'd actually kind of shift, I think, more from small cap into mid cap. But even within, say, looking at mid and small relative to, to large, uh, a lot of that, people are expecting, say, a repatriation tax holiday or a repatriation change to the tax code in general. And if that money does indeed come back where businesses invest in property mm-hmm. and equipment, that's probably, you know, small and mid cap stocks are likely going to be the ones who build out that type of property, plant, and equipment. We're going to continue this discussion. One quick question, Brian Jacobson, if I could. Do you buy international through U.S. multinationals, or do you now have to go abroad? Well, I I think going abroad might be a a better way to go. It's just a wider opportunity set. Uh, If you do it through the U.S., you tend to get a lot of geographic concentration. Uh, You know, our biggest trading partners, Canada, Mexico, and Europe. So, uh, you know, if you really want to have a globally diversified portfolio, I don't think using U.S. multinationals as a proxy is really the best way to go. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. Here is the interview of the day. I guess you could go back to, well, President Clinton where she was a vice chair. I think back then she was vice chairman, but now she's vice chair. Or you could go back to 1994 when she was 30th director of OMB. Or you could go back to, I think it was Hamilton, but it may have been Madison, where she set up the budget for Alexander Hamilton. Alice Rivlin, wonderful to have you with us uh, today. I am sure. Alexander Hamilton was terrific. I know. (laughs) I am sure from the leafy leafy groves of Radcliffe a few years ago, you didn't expect we'd see what we're seeing right now. Speak to the people across this nation listening of how you are developing Rivlin patience given the news flow. How are you staying cool, calm, and Alice Rivlin connected? (laughs) Well... Uh, I've seen a lot of upheaval in Washington. This one is quite unusual, and the news is coming fast and furious, as you as you know. Fortunately, though, uh, the economy's in good shape. We're not in a crisis, and uh, actually, a lot of the news uh, is about things that are important but not central to the economy, uh, the wall and uh, so forth. But um, it's uh, quite a kaleidoscope of uh, crazy things happening. Alice, how difficult is it to filter out that noise? It sounds like you're, you're regarding that as noise, conversation about the wall and, and what may or may not happen with regard to, uh, to infrastructure. When you, when you look at the health of the economy, uh, how easy is it to factor out the political noise right now? 
Well, I think you just have to concentrate on what's important. What I've been concentrating on recently is what in the world are they going to do uh, about uh, the Affordable Care Act? Mm. Uh, that's pretty big, both economically and uh, in people's lives. Uh, and uh, the president tra- campaigned on uh, it was a terrible law and we have to repeal it. It promised to replace it with something great. Now they've got to do that, and they're finding out that it is very, very difficult. Uh, in part because a lot of people uh, have insurance that they don't want to lose, and institutions like uh, hospitals and and, uh, doctors are dependent on uh, getting their bills paid. Uh, So it's not so easy to uh, change this law, and Republicans themselves are not united on what to do. Yeah, former HHS Secretary Mike Levitt was with us earlier in the week, and and he said that it would be dangerous to do a repeal without having anything to replace it there uh, at the ready. Is there a growing consensus about that in Washington? Yes, I think there's a growing consensus, uh, and it probably includes President Trump. Uh, He has said – well, not probably. It definitely includes President Trump. He has said several times uh, that uh, replacement must come along with repeal. That's very sensible. He doesn't want a political catastrophe on his hands uh, in his uh, first month in office. The trouble is that replacement is hard, and different uh, parts of his own party have different ideas about it. Uh, Yesterday we saw an entry from Senators uh, Collins and Cassidy, which I think is uh, sort of a promising opening of a conversation, but it basically said, let states choose. Uh, They can stay in Obamacare if they want to, or they can do something more Republican. Uh, The something more Republican isn't very well defined, uh, but it would involve health savings accounts, uh, federal contributions to health savings accounts, and uh, that's a a way to talk about it. Uh, Help us here with our collective wisdom in this ahistorical America that we have, when people talk about high inflation, to a person, our guests suggest 3%, maybe a little bit higher inflation, maybe. You lived that what I call the Walter Heller inflation of the 60s. Robert Samuelson is wonderful on this, folks, at the Washington Post. Do you see any framework where President Trump could stumble into a larger inflation? No. Inflation is very low on my uh, list of worries. Uh, It's been hard to get anywhere near uh, the uh, Federal Reserve's goal for 2% inflation. Inflation has been too low, not too high. Uh, I think it will uh, not be a high on our list of, uh, of worries. The economy is much more flexible. It's much more global. Uh, and uh, people don't expect inflation. Uh, nobody uh, under the age of uh, 50 has ever experienced yeah. inflation. So they don't think about it. Yeah. And uh, I don't think it's a big worry. See how she did that, David, girl? She put me right in my place. Those, those youngsters under 50. God, I feel old. <laughs> Help me, Dave. Alice, on your list of worries, where is where is the Fed? When you're having lunch in the uh, the fabled Brookings Institution cafeteria, there maybe Ben Bernanke is uh, grabbing a sandwich as well. Do you talk about the, the, the role the Fed is going to play, this discussion about a rules-based Fed? Uh, are there concerns about what might happen if there is more political involvement with the Federal Reserve? What, what's your sense of its future? How worried about it are you? 
Well, there, all of those conversations have been going on, of course, for quite a while because uh, there, uh, the, the Republicans in the House particularly uh, have been very anti-Fed for quite a long time. I'm not sure that that will carry over into the new administration. Uh, they were fussing at the Fed for not raising interest rates faster. Uh, now that they're in control, are they going to want interest rates to go up faster? I don't think so. Uh, so some of that may die down. Uh, I do think uh, that um, uh, threatening the independence of the Fed would be a big mistake, and in the end, I don't think they'll do it. Help me with the migratory patterns of deficit hawks. Uh, I associate you with the OMB, with the Federal Reserve, and also uh, with the movement a while back to tackle the deficit. You and Maya McGinnis at the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget worked on that with Senator Mark Warner uh, and others. Amid these conversations about tax reform, about the Affordable Care Act, uh, do you think we're going to see uh, serious opposition here from people who are saying, look, we've got to consider uh, the deficit? Well, I hope so, but I hope it's sensible um, opposition. It shouldn't be opposition to uh, pro-growth uh, spending uh, on the grounds that it increases the uh, deficit, because you do need the economy growing faster, and what matters is the debt-to-GDP ratio, and raising the GDP is a good thing. Uh, but uh, I am an unreconstructed believer that we need to do two things at once. We need to grow the economy faster, and and we need to get our long-run debt uh, mm. on a stable path. That means entitlement reform, sensible entitlement reform, uh, and it means tax reform that increases rather than decreases revenues in the long run. I think we can do that. We, I was on the Simpson-Bowles Commission. We had quite a good plan. Uh, and uh, my old friend yeah. Pete Domenici and I chaired a, a bipartisan group that came up with another plan. Plans exist. They are good, good sensible things to do. Uh, and I hope we get back to that conversation. Vice Chairman, thank you so much. Alice Rivlin, of course, of CBO, OMB, and the Fed uh, with us this morning with terrific perspective. Look for her writings, particularly uh, through uh, Brookings. In the 13th edition of his classic textbook, he does what Alan Blinder always does. He tries to make you think. Ideas for beyond the final exam. And I love idea one. This is like 8,000 pages. It's like sort of like the Old Testament combined with the New Testament. How much does it really cost? Professor Blinder of Princeton, wonderful to have you with us this morning. It, it, is, is President Trump able to get out beyond the final exam in our nation's economics? It's hard to, for me to imagine that he would pass a final exam, even if it was set by a highly conservative free market economist. Can Glenn Hubbard and Martin Feldstein support, I guess, their candidate after what you've observed the last four or five well, days? Well, I don't think actually he was their candidate. Uh, True. Fair. Those fair. two gentlemen are conservative compared to me. Uh, they're lifelong Republicans, but they certainly did not support Donald Trump. How much energy do you put into trying to define what Trumponomics uh, is in, in, in light of what we've seen? Uh, uh, there's been a lot of whipsawing here. Are we any closer to having a definition of it? Is it worth even trying to pin down? I think it's worth trying to pin down once the economic program has taken uh, greater shape. 
than it is. We know the broad outlines. There's going to be tax cuts for individuals, certainly, for corporations, probably. There's going to be something that passes for an infrastructure plan. There'll most likely be a defense buildup. There will certainly be an evisceration of regulations. But in every and there will be something to replace Obamacare, we think. Uh, but in every one of those domains, we don't really have much of an idea concretely about what's going to happen. Uh, but that kind of idea should start taking shape within the coming weeks and months. Let's talk a little bit about the, the Federal Reserve, so an institution that, that you know well. There's the conversation yeah. brewing on the Hill about a more rules-based approach here. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a conversation that started during the campaign about the politicization of the Federal Reserve. To what degree does the Fed need to stand up for itself more than it has? Do you expect that we'll hear more from the Fed chair here in this year? Um, we will to the extent that some of the things that are bouncing around in Congress that threaten the independence of the Fed come up again and again, and the chair needs to respond. But the truth is that for better or for worse, and I think it's mostly for better, the Federal Reserve is not a very political institution. And the people that need to stand up for the Fed are the politicians, Democrats and Republicans, that see the importance of the Federal Reserve as a pretty technocratic, non-political organization Mm -hmm. that, by the way, works. I mean, one of the things that got Donald Trump elected was the Republican success in making the government look totally dysfunctional. The Federal Reserve has never looked dysfunctional. It's not dysfunctional today. Many people in Congress understand that, and they have to stand up and be counted. Help me here with another one of Blinder Bomo's ideas uh, trade is a win-win situation. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Trump doesn't agree, and there's frankly a lot of Americans. I don't know if you saw Brad DeLong's essay, Professor Blinder, but he just killed it on the mathematics of how NAFTA, WTO, and TTP don't play that great a part in the debate. Help us trade. Can it be win-win? Trade is win-win when you go to the level of the nation, which is what that point is about every country benefits from trade. The problem is that it's not true that every citizen in every country benefits from trade. When trade moves economic activity from one place where it lacks a comparative advantage, this is the term David Ricardo introduced 200 years ago, to another country that has a comparative advantage, so for example, those two countries could be the U.S. and China, People will lose their jobs. Capitalists will lose their capital in the industries that contract. The opposite will happen in the industries that expand. And it's demonstrable that in total the wins exceed the losses. But that's very small consolation to the losers. And the truth is that we in America and also people in other countries have not done nearly enough to uh, compensate the losers. Blinder, Chapter 18, page 371. 
David. <laughs> can protectionism save free trade with a grizzled view of William Sapphire? That's what you get in Blinder's textbook. I wonder if a more lucid explanation could have saved uh, free trade. Looking back on the way that Ambassador Mike Froman tried to sell this to, to the Congress and, and via them, the oh, American public. I'm not blaming him in particular, but but do, do, you, do you think that more could have been done to explain uh, the, the role of free trade, what benefits it does have, and, and, and who indeed it would benefit? I think a little, but I don't think that would have been uh, enough of a force against the demagoguery. We could have done – well, I have said innumerable times that this is a failure of economists for 200 years. We were all – well, we, most of us weren't alive then. Those of <laughs> just those Tom, economists just who Tom. were there 200 years ago were instantly converted by David Ricardo and – the economics profession has never changed its mind on this, but it hasn't really carried the message right. very well to the public. Uh, part of it is a failure, and that, David, is the part that could have been done better to explain to people how, for example, all those cheap things they buy in appliance stores and at Walmart are <clears throat> products of free trade, and they'd be right. harder to get and more expensive. Were it not for free trade. Well, let's do this. Professor Blinder, let's come back. Alan Blinder is going to continue with us. He's very generous of his time. Uh, Professor Blinder, it is an historic day of Dow 20,000. I was trying to look back, uh, Alan, to where I sort of remember the Dow. And I use that one moment in history so, for so many Americans, not Pearl Harbor, but for my generation, the assassination of the president. And it was a Dow 700, a Dow 800. And we're now at Dow 20,000. We had the Carter malaise, uh, not directly associated with President Carter. And whether it's up 6% or up 9%, equities are an awful good way to make money. What happened to our spirit of capitalism while we migrate ever higher to an unimaginable 20,000? You know, I hear things about that. But I don't see it. I mean, as I look around our society, the spirit of capitalism and of entrepreneurship in particular is flourishing. I mean, it's not just in Silicon Valley, which is the most obvious, but, you know, you have Silicon Valleys in New York and lots of other mini Silicon Valleys in New York and, and lots of other uh, places. You still have Americans opening businesses against the odds. Most of these small businesses fail, as you know. But that's part of the American dream, to uh, start and run your own uh, business. So, you know, when people talk about things America needs, I see some things like infrastructure, which is falling apart. But it seems to me, casually anyway, that there's lots of entrepreneurship. There's there's lots of entrepreneurship, and, and, and I wonder here, uh, Professor Blinder, uh, if there's a way for the government to kickstart more of that. In other words, is, is yeah. the focus misplaced? Um, I think there are ways to kickstart uh, some of that having to do with um, reducing red tape. A good example, by the way, is licensure. Mm. We require licenses for all kinds of things. Now, some, of course, you want a license. You want your doctor to be licensed and so on. But there's lots of other things where, you know, barbers and hairdressers and things like that. Vince, we, we need the kind of licensing restrictions that we have. So that's one thing. People talk a lot about capital gains treatment from uh, startup businesses. I think there's something to that, but you've got to be careful about that. I mean, imagine that we gave a tax-free 
capital gain to Bill Gates when he started Microsoft. Uh, by the way, he didn't yeah. need such an inducement to start Microsoft, despite the taxes that uh, were, in, were in effect then. So you, have, you need to be careful uh, about things like that. Professor Blinder, one last question, if we could, this morning. You end your exceptionally well-done textbook, no nation, no nation is an island, page 410. When you wrote No Nation is an Island 13 editions ago, Correct. did you ever think we'd be here today? And what do you say to the nation as we look at our present political economics and by, no nation? By be here today, you mean with a president that thinks we should go back to uh, uh, isolationism? Well, I did not. Yeah. I did not. If you mean by that, did I think we were going to be in an increasingly globalized world? Sure, I did. Now, did I know the details of it then? Of course not, not even close. But the forces of history, including technology, uh, push only in one direction. You know, mm -hmm. as I say history's arc is towards globalization. And you can rail against the uh, future the way the Luddites in England did against uh, technology. In the early part of the in the beginnings of the industrial revolution but it's not going to do you any good uh it's not going to stop the forces of history very good uh, professor blind not a neo-luddite yeah. alan blinder yeah. uh, alan blinder thank you so much immensely appreciate it Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.